Hey folks, welcome back to the 175th Dark Horse live stream. This is the Q&A segment. I am Dr. Brett Weinstein. This is Dr. Heather Hying. You apparently have some questions and we hope that we have the answers. And we are doing this only on Rumble. It will later also be on Spotify, but that's the only other place. So thank you for joining us here. Please subscribe. This is our brand new Rumble channel. It's been a long time coming. We should have done it a long time ago, but here we are. Please subscribe. That helps us out a lot. Definitely share, talk about it, uh, but subscribe. It really does. Um, I think you have to have a Rumble account in order to do it, but it's worth it. Um, you'll just feel so much better. Will they? I think so. Okay. I know that I did. Okay. Well, there it is. <laughs> I mean, you know, full disclosure. I don't know what it means, but I've disclosed it all. You have disclosed some of the allness of it. Some of the allness of it. Yes, mm -hmm. that's a very that's a very good way of putting that. This is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, you know, I'm, I'm not saying it can't be improved. But I'm yeah, afraid pretty, that our standards are sinking. Your your meaning was conveyed. Mm, okay. All right. Uh, we always begin these live streams with a question from our Discord server, uh, which you can get access to at either of our Patreons. Um, so we answered a question a while back. They they have book clubs on the Discord, and they were reading the book Deep Simplicity, which is not a book that either you or I are familiar with. But they say this week another question the book club has after reading Deep Simplicity. They say, there is complexity in biological systems, but also in physical systems, whether plate tectonics, galaxies. All of those systems interact with each other. So where is the line between alive versus not alive? Is this a relevant distinction? Would you like to start? Yeah, I, I will start. Okay. I mean, I, of course, we've been party to many arguments over the years about what's live and what's not live. And there are lots of edge cases, right? You've got, um, you know, hurricanes, which meet some of the definitional characteristics and not others. I think hurricanes are clearly not alive. Viruses are a nice little edge case because they behave in a lifelike fashion while having effectively offloaded the living work to other systems, systems that they parasitize. Um, so they, anyway, you've got edge cases like that. You've got prions, things like that. What I would say is that the thing you're really after is cumulative change in the selective direction. In other words, selection, as we talk about in our book, selection exists in many different kinds of systems and it creates patterns. Those patterns, when you add heritability to them, you get adaptation. And when we say living, what we're really referring to is the adaptive nature of these systems. Viruses are clearly adapted, right? So they are a the product of the force that is the sine qua non of life, hurricanes are not. They don't have a hereditary component. And so, or the, the simple um, example that we have used, and I don't actually remember if we use it in the book, is the way that tides end up arranging the rocks on the beach by size. Uh, that there is no heritable component there. So it is selection that, uh, that arranges the rocks by size on a beach. Uh, that has regular tides, uh, but there is no adaptation, and therefore it is not a living process. It is not an adaptive process. Yep. So I think I think that's where to go. Stop stop thinking about is it alive or isn't it alive. Start thinking about is it adaptive or not adaptive, and you will find your edge cases evaporate. And whether plate tectonics, galaxies, none of them 
are yep. adaptive. Exactly. All right. Let us go to the, this is darkhorsesubmissions.com. Uh, now that we're on Rumble, we may uh, we may start pulling in questions uh, from Rumble's version of uh, of what in YouTube is called Super Chat, but we're sticking with this only for for now, unless Zach sees something and decides to yell it out at us. Um, okay, let us let us. I have not looked at these yet. Let's go. Uh, people refused to improve their COVID models by denying better models existed, insisting there was an AI event horizon is analogous. Many working in the field did predict correctly. I don't know how insisting on an event horizon with AI is analogous. Um, so, because event horizon is about what can't be seen. What and, can't be seen beyond an inflection point. Right, and COVID models, um, COVID models improving on the basis of what exists. I, I guess it doesn't. I see that there's a similarity, but it doesn't feel. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't feel analogous to me. There's a question about whether or not we are predicting the fact of the event horizon or predicting what was beyond the event horizon. And there it is. Directly yeah. predicting that there would be an event horizon, I don't think is surprising. And in fact, I know I keep saying that I'm going to release my 2016 piece, and I am. I swear I'm just trying to get the physical architecture involved with releasing such things in place, and then I will immediately release it. But, you know... Uh, there are aspects of what is taking place in the present that I predicted too. So I'm not arguing that that's impossible, but the idea that we do not know what becomes of civilization in the aftermath of the dawning of AGI, I think is pretty clear. Now, there's some people who are claiming that they absolutely uh, know it, and frankly, the shocking part is that they believe they know it essentially to a certainty. And um, that's there's something off about that. It involves frankly, funny and flawed math, in my opinion. That's it? Yep. Okay, this is going to be short today. Okay. Um, I just, I have nothing to say on that because I really have not been thinking about the AI stuff. Um, we should have said uh, that before we see these guys next, uh, you're going to have a guest episode of Dark Horse out um, on the subject of AI. It should Absolutely. Be, it should be fantastic. I don't know. I wasn't there for the conversation. With at least one incendiary point, which mm -hmm. I believe will uh, cause much fascination. Excellent. This is a big one. Parent of one with one on the way. That's two. Oh, you're good. Thank you. If you were to have another child, which vaccines would, which vaccines would be a yay and which a nay? Is there any wheat here anymore or only chaff? Man, my blood pressure went up at the mere mention of wheat. Yeah, wheat here is the good stuff, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, at first I didn't read that correctly either. Um, I don't know. You know, we're not in that position. Uh, we haven't uh, We haven't had to face it. Um Why don't we just... I don't trust the schedule because I don't trust the people who made it, the vaccine schedule, the pediatric vaccine schedule. But we didn't we didn't accept the pediatric vaccine schedule when our children were young uh, before we were thinking about the distinctions between, uh, for instance, uh, the adjuvanted uh, vaccines and the, what do we call the, like the whole... Attenuated. 
attenuated virus or pathogen vaccines. Uh, like we, we, we both knew that there was a distinction, but we weren't thinking that that really mattered. And now it really feels like it matters. Uh, so adjuvanted vaccines are not, uh, are, should, I would avoid them if I could, uh, especially for my child. The younger, the younger you are, the more likely uh, they are to prompt something that may cause cascading uh, immune effects uh, that could turn into autoimmune problems. Autoimmune or immune to environmental. Exactly. So allergies are autoimmune problems. Uh, so I have no idea what in the pediatric vaccine schedule at the moment is adjuvanted versus... Um, attenuated. Thank you. Attenuated uh, pathogen, pathogen vaccines. Uh, and like many who have lived through the last three years, I am now less willing uh, to take public health authorities at their word that things are what they say they are. That's not helpful as uh, an actionable thing to, to take to your pediatrician, though. Well, I would, I mean, I think we say in the book, and we've certainly said many times on Dark Horse, when we we're facing this question with our kids and we're not yet as aware of the concerns surrounding adjuvants uh, and I would say lots of other issues, manufacturing defects and uh, shenanigans with lot numbers and all of the things that potentially impact this. We did have a skepticism about the safety. We thought it was being overrated that the degree to which these things were represented as safe was probably wrong and that the degree to which they were being pushed on children earlier than necessary was pretty clear. So our rule was every single one that was on the schedule that we accepted, we Push. delayed as long as possible so mm -hmm. that as much development would be passed before any adverse event as possible. And I now regard that as good advice, but very, it's the shallow end of the pool um, I would be yep. very skeptical about adjuvanted vaccines. I would be very skeptical about vaccines that have a uh, some kind of obvious hand waving in the explanation. What, like, what do you mean? Let's take HPV for a second. So not for infants, right? Babies aren't getting being given no, HPV. They're not. They are being given hepatitis C. I'm trying to remember if it's C, but they're being given something at birth, which is insane because the only case in which it's relevant is if the mother is like an IV drug user. And so there is no reason to be exposing most children to it because they're just not in a category where they could conceivably encounter the pathogen. Um, what could go wrong? So that's a hand-waving argument, the idea that you know, yeah, yeah. we are just going to do that. Why? Because we don't want to shame people who have hepatitis C. I, no, sorry, you could protect. Well, again, again, with the sacrificing the large numbers of people for the, in some cases, totally fabricated, but maybe um, tiny, tiny, tiny number of people. And it's not even sacrificing them. It's like, oh, we don't want to hurt the feelings of a tiny number of people. So we're actually going to do harm to large numbers of people who never should have been exposed to such harms. In a way that just so happens to serve a corporate interest in this case. Right. Right. Oh, like, but that's just a coincidence. Yeah, just a coincidence. But anyway, I would say, okay, the hep the idea of being inoculated for, I think, any hepatitis uh, 
at birth when you're not going to be exposed to the pathogen is bonkers. Yep. And so I would say, hey, doc, oh. that's bonkers. Not doing it. Right. Um, no, but I mean, it's like it's like being like, okay, we're going to give you a rabies shot. Like, I, what? I don't have a rabies shot. What? Like, we do. We do. We're vaccinated against rabies because you were doing work with bats and I was working with you for a while and, like, it was actually a risk of exposure. Yeah. And the rabies vaccine was good and it was available to us and rabies is terrible and we were going to be exposed to it maybe right we're doing stuff that put us at risk of exposure the vast majority of people who were working on bc on Barrow, colorado island in panama where you were doing your bat work weren't vaccinated against rabies because they weren't putting themselves in a position where they might have been at risk you don't vaccinate rando americans against rabies why are you vaccinating rando american babies against hepatitis whatever letter it is yeah. i don't know uh, yeah. So, I mean, this, like, that argument right there, that's not an anti-vaxxer argument. That's a pro-reason argument. That's a, actually, I learned how to think back in fifth grade. What happened to you? Like, where's your brain? Right. Why are you vaccinating babies against things that they will never get exposed to? Yes, of course there's a risk. Because anything you do, there is a risk. Do no harm. Start there. Right. I mean, and, you know, any conversation about vaccine safety has to start with the adult level threshold. The adult level threshold is no vaccine is perfectly safe, and there are many instances in which vaccines have been decidedly dangerous, including many which made it to market before that discovery was made, right? So should your child take this vaccine? If they have a zero risk from the pathogen, no, right? At the point that they have a risk, we can talk. But let's take the HPV vaccine. Mm -hmm. there's a conversation that we do not have, right, that we should be having. And that mm -hmm. conversation is, first of all, the HPV vaccine is not like a vaccine against HPV. It's apparently a vaccine against four strains of HPV, of which there are many, like something like 16, I think, strains. Mm, I right? B, the harms of HPV are delayed to late in life. So you're talking about to the extent that people get a risk from the vaccine itself, you're talking about risking young people in order to prevent a pathology that is indeed bad late. Mm -hmm. But then back to Nuremberg. Okay. Sorry to tell you this. Casual sex results in the transmission of HPV. HPV has consequences. You cannot solve those consequences risk-free with a vaccine the way you are being told. You have a right to know that because you have a right to balance your choices so you can say, ah, I can't be perfectly protected from this stuff. Um, I can protect myself through modifications of my behavior that might not sound like what I want to be doing, but maybe it's the right thing for me to be doing. You have a right to all of the information so you can plot a course through your life. And instead, what we are doing is there is a problem. It's called X. We have a solution. It's called anti-X. Anti-X is cost-free. All you need to do is endure a little pain at the end of a needle, right? And it can be taken care of and you can go around and fuck who you want, right? No, I'm sorry. It doesn't work that way. Adult level conversation. There are costs. There are benefits. You have a right to all of the information and then you get a right to say, no, doc, I'm not taking that. Worse, in the case of HPV, we have a difficult philosophical problem, right? Should I vaccinate my male child against a disease in which the harms are almost entirely manifested in females. Yes, it would be 
uh, from the perspective of protecting females, defensible. But is that my job as the parent of a male child to defend other females by putting my own child at risk? That's a tough philosophical problem. But it is not one that is simply settled, where we've said, yes, we do that. We, we put our boys at risk to protect our girls. That's what we do civilization-wide. We never had that conversation. Mm -hmm. So the point is, look, these things are tough. Let's stop pretending they're not. And the entire idea that there are two kinds of people in the world, right? There are sane people and there are anti-vaxxers, right? Nope, I'm sorry. There are a lot of people, you know, most of the people that we call anti-vaxxers, or I don't know if it's most, but I suspect it is, are people who've actually watched somebody be harmed by something, something that doctors cannot explain. So the point is, are these people entitled to be concerned about vaccines if they've had a child injured by something and a doctor can't tell you what it is? Yeah, they have a right to be concerned. Well, and it's like, is it a reasonable position to say no more of your treatments when you gaslit me after I saw direct harm to myself or someone I loved? Is that's an irrational position? No, no, it's not actually. It's it's a rational position. And so, I mean, I think one thing that we are seeing starkly these last two years is how many utterly rational decisions get framed, get marketed to us as uh, conspiracy cranks who couldn't possibly have anything to offer in the conversation. And meanwhile, literal propaganda is pushed at us as if it's the science. So propaganda is science, science is propaganda, and the people who are actually trying to figure out what's true are gaslit, called conspiracy theorists, and thrown under collective buses. Yeah. The act of trying to figure out what is in your interest so that you can decide for yourself in an informed way whether or not to consent to a treatment, which was, by the way, framed and codified at Nuremberg in the context of us hanging seven doctors over it, right? That is somehow a, an unforgivable sin in the yeah. present. And, you know, I guess the, the other... There are a lot of elephants in this room, right? <laughs> the, the other elephant, and there's probably more that we haven't even you know, pointed out yet, is apropos the conversation that we had a while back um, after I read Celia Farber's Serious Adverse Events, which is about the history of AIDS and HIV, in which um, many people, many of which should have known, could have known, including literally two Nobel laureates, Luc Montagnier and Carrie Mullis, came to the conclusion, surprising to themselves, um, that they didn't see any evidence that HIV could be the cause of AIDS. Um, I don't remember exactly where each of them came out, um, but you know, one one of the position among I don't know, let's call it the AIDS dissidents, the HIV dissidents, uh, is HIV may be involved, um, but it can't be the causal agent given you know, given the, you know so many things, um, but included in which is like all these people um, with HIV that never manifest with AIDS at all, and a certain number of people with AIDS that don't have HIV, although that's less common because HIV turns out to be actually a pretty common fellow traveler for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so that that reality caused me to consider whether or not there are other situations like this. Right. You know, to what degree, to what degree are some other 
vaccines, uh, which are targeted against a particular pathogen, may be effective against that pathogen. But if that pathogen doesn't actually do the thing it is purported to do in being the primary cause of a disease, then you also don't want that vaccine because there's no reason to go after that pathogen. You would do like some disease is definitely bad and you want to go after that. Um, but if we've got the wrong first part of the story, wherein, you know, pathogen A causes disease B and now we've got vaccine C to kill off pathogen A. Well, if a, the A to B linkage, if A doesn't cause B, then no amount of vaccine C is going to help you any. So, you know, the, I don't know how much of that is going on. And this is not a denial of viruses, and it's not a denial of germ theory of disease, while understanding that germ theory of disease and, you know, terrain theory or whatever it's called, or, you know, can coexist. Like, we can understand that we need to have healthy bodies, and that also pathogens can get in and wreak havoc and kill us, right? Like, both of those things are true. But when we have gotten wrong that pathogen A is causal in disease B, which we have, we will have done sometimes, then the treatment, that's just another route in for the treatment not being the right one. So one of the things that I'm hoping to see change is we need to shut down the landscape through which we are fooled by people who do not have our interests at heart. Mm. The right way to figure out whether or not a vaccine is something that one should entertain is not to get involved in the minutiae of the mechanism of action, of whether it induces a proper titer, yada, yada, yada. These things are all garbage. Yeah. Okay. What you want to know is, does it provide an all-cause mortality benefit or not? Yes. As Christine Stable-Ben points out, if it doesn't provide an all-cause mortality benefit, even if it prevents the disease in question, and even if that disease is harmful, you don't care. What you care about is, am I going to live longer if I have this thing? And so mm -hmm. all-cause mortality is a beautiful integrative measure that tells you everything you want to know, and it doesn't allow any place to hide stuff. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a problem with it. It takes a long time. Well, in if you want to do it perfectly, then you got to measure through the end of life, mm -hmm. right? Because you got to figure out whether it knocks, you know, if you're going to die at 75 rather than 80 mm -hmm. and that requires you to follow people so that you catch all the long-term stuff so you've got to make an approximation from an earlier hopefully a large data set but you know can you extrapolate from the first hour after vaccination to how long it's gonna you know what it's gonna do to your all-cause mortality no you can't so you have to follow for some period of time and then you're gonna have to make reasonable assumptions about how to extrapolate but at the end of the day we should all be able to agree on this fact if it doesn't provide an all-cause mortality benefit. This is the best measure. It, this would be the best measure. We should be trying to figure out what the best proxy for that measure is unless we are willing to have new treatments come on the market and then wait 60 years before they can enter yeah, the public it's gonna, domain. It's going to be a diminishing returns problem, right? Mm -hmm. And the point is you want to get to the sweet spot of the diminishing returns before you start paying huge costs for tiny little increases in your understanding of how dangerous the thing is. Yeah. And if at that point it's like, yeah, this provides an all-cause mortality benefit. Well, is it tiny? If it's tiny, I don't care. I'm still not doing it. Mm -hmm. If it's large, large all-cause mortality benefit mm -hmm. at the point that more data will tell us less and less, okay, then I'm in. Yeah. But the point is that we're just making it harder. Still your choice. 
it's still my choice. I can still evaluate it. I can say, what are the chances that that <clears throat> experiment was done incorrectly? Right. What are the chances that something that happens really late in life matters enough to change my decision? All of that stuff. So you want to know all-cause mortality benefit, and I think you also want to know number needed to treat, right? Mm-hmm. right? If you've yeah. got to treat yep. 10,000 people to get one benefit, then the point is... Eh, I mean, that's going to show I mean, up I in think, your... I think all-cause mortality encompasses that. So yep. you, don't, you don't need number needed to treat. On the other hand, number needed to treat is a shorter-term metric. So yep. you, you can get it sooner. Uh, it, but it's it's not nearly as good as all-cause mortality. But I, I, as I said, actually getting all-cause mortality, you know, the, the, the full suite of data will take decades. Yep. Um, so the right the right proxies are necessary. And perhaps, um, I'm sorry, what is her name? Christine Stableben. Christine Stableben may well have the right proxies or, you know, and certainly has uh, the experience and the insight to, to, to work towards figuring out what they are. Yep. But let's just say at the end of the day, we are looking for those simple measures that allow you to make an informed choice rather than some sort of, yeah. you know, 10 dimensional shell game in which the you know, you're not saying you don't want more titers, you know, higher mm. titer for this particular pathogen, which you is an anti-titer. Sca- right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So we don't, we don't want to play that game. I yeah. just want to know, am yep. I, am I net better off or am I not net better off? Yep. Yep. Good. Uh, maybe it's time for a satirical trans fats campaign calling for fat affirming care to help facilitate the transition of fit kids to fat ones. Thoughts? Well, yeah, we could get the formula makers right in on that. I mean, I think we can get the you can get M M&M and M Mars or whatever it is. Oh, we can totally. Coke, uh, probably Procter and Gamble. I mean, everyone really. Yeah, no, I mean, every who wouldn't be in favor of this, right? Can't imagine. I mean, for one thing, it's readily doable. It's... Making kids fat is that's something we can do. Yeah, Americans, we got this. Yeah, we got this. We got this one. Exactly. Right, but yeah, we just let's just call it an ad campaign. I mean, it, and, you it, know... at least you know we could we could turn it into a competition and we could give credit for major achievements. Yeah, and making fat is fatter. first. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, that's a very silly idea, but uh, but I appreciate it. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, oh. You two have a healthy appreciation of silliness, and I think it boosts your authenticity versus those who don't. Uh, for instance, Musk versus Gates. Mm. Thoughts on the importance of silly and self-deprecating displays? Oh, interesting. Yeah, Musk versus Gates. That's a, that's that's interesting comparison. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I haven't spent much time like watching either of them, but I can't think of. Have you ever seen Bill Gates smile? I've seen him smile. as as our son points out he grins when he says creepy shit which yeah that's terrible in a a past era we might have called that a red flag yeah you know yeah um Um, yeah look let's put it this way i think there i think you could you could uh what's the term partialize humor into a bunch of different categories and you could talk about which things are important to what silliness can obviously be frivolous i think it does tell you you know, you and me being silly together yeah. probably just tells you something about the sort of, you know, internal same page kind of stuff. I'm probably not kicking you under the table. You're probably you're probably not kicking me under the table. Yeah, <laughs> things can't be terribly tenuous if if we're being goofy, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's a proxy for something. Yeah. Also, so yeah, it's it's a tell of sorts. Yeah. Yeah. Then there's going to be a. Um, there's something about, 
I mean, I've said it in the context of young people finding mates. Mm-hmm. And I hate it that I have to say this because it puts a lot of people out of the realm of being marriageable to anybody. But you should never contemplate marrying anybody who doesn't have a sense of humor about themselves, period, the end. I don't, so you can develop a sense of humor about yourself. So it does, it does not put people permanently outside of the realm of being marriageable by your rubric. What it does it raise, is raises the bar and returns as... So, we should be returning so much more agency to individuals and saying, you, young woman, you, young man, are what you are, and you can become something different. You can't change everything. You cannot change your sex. You cannot change your height if you're already full grown. You can't change your weight. Uh, and you know you can change a number of things about how you interact with the world and how you understand it and how you view the person who grimaces at you in the street, uh, whether or not you take it as a personal assault or as uh, you know is your first take, why did he do that to me, or is your first take, oh, I bet that guy's having a bad day, right? Even just those different approaches to how how you go about things will change your outlook on life, and and so too can you decide. Okay, I need to take myself a little bit less seriously. I need to understand that I am fallible and human. And um, I'm going to look around and go like, yeah, I'm betting everyone else is too. And, you know, this becomes harder with social media as part of what's going on, right? Like everyone knows that their feeds are highly curated, photoshopped, whatever it is now, filtered, like, you know, whatever the modern language is for fake, like total fictions, and yet are still compelled when they look at other people's feeds that those aren't. Yeah. Like, you know, we've got this cognitive dissonance, but especially the young people who are still trying to figure out, you know, how to make meaning in the world and to some sense who they are, what their identity is, um, know that they're making shit up and therefore don't trust their own sense of, of their identity and their meaning-making apparatus, but they look at other people's and they go, oh, everyone is doing so much better than me. So how do you... It must, I think maybe it feels like taking a step even further down, be like, and I'm going to like make fun of myself and I'm not going to like, I think it feels to people like if you are self-deprecating or if you're silly, that somehow you're going to lose confidence or like it's, it's a, maybe this, I think those who don't actually have the confidence, the people like the, the college professors who never go off script who come in and say, this is what we're talking about. Someone has a really great question. You say, well, we're not talking about that today. We've all been in those classrooms, right? Those are bad teachers and they're probably not very smart people and they probably don't know very much about what they're talking about. Oh, we're not talking about that today. Sometimes, yes, okay, we're we're trying to get to an end and it's 10 minutes left and like, we'll come back to that. But, oh, we're not talking about that today. That is actually a tell that like you're not confident. And those people aren't going to tend to be silly either because... Um, mm. because No telling where that goes. Yeah, there's no telling where it goes. It's unpredictable. They want to have like total control so that no one looks behind the curtain and realizes that they're naked and stupid back there. So, all right, you've persuaded me. I overstate the case. It's not that you are permanently uh, unmarriageable if you don't have a sense of humor about yourself. But if you can't develop a sense of humor about yourself, Mm -hmm. look, my advice is to the person deciding, not the person in question. If somebody can't, doesn't have a sense of humor about themselves, my point is they don't really have the tools to navigate a relationship, right? Because you have to have a willingness to look at the absurdity of the predicament of being a fish that has moved on to land and is now involved in contracts to 
team up for child rearing. I mean, the, the whole thing is ridiculous and not very simple. And so you, a sense of humor about yourself is kind of key. It's the, it's the way of signaling, for one thing, that you understand that the other person is also trapped in a weird predicament, mm -hmm. right? If you can recognize your own absurdity, then that uh, puts the other person in a better position to recognize theirs. And then you have the tools to navigate and renegotiate and all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, anyway, so my point is that is a kind of humor, right? Humor about yourself mm -hmm. is a kind of humor that one can reliably use to detect that you have certain skills that might be necessary in certain contexts. So the question, the precision of which I have now forgotten. You too have a healthy appreciation of silliness, silliness, and I think it boosts your authenticity versus those who don't. For instance, Musk versus Gates. Thoughts on the importance of silly or self-deprecating displays? Question mark. Yeah. So... I do think various kinds of humor function as various kinds of proxies, but I also think that you you got at it in a different way that doesn't require humor to be the mechanism. Mm -hmm. Willingness to be off script is evidence of confidence in one's position. Mm -hmm. If you yep. are pulling a fast one on people, it might be very important for them to sit there and not four feet to the right mm -hmm. you know so to the extent that somebody is trying to manage from where they will be viewed or managing mm -hmm. in exactly how you will interpret something about them right it might be that that is an indication that the the whole thing is you know uh, a mile wide and an inch deep a potemkin pandemic uh, for example yeah um right for instance you ready yeah what do you think about the theory that the Fukushima disaster may have contributed to the sea star die-off along the Pacific coast? So, um, um, I wrote about the sea star die-off uh, after we were in Alaska yep. on, on the Uncruise. And uh, I elided what I and we thought might be going on. And someone um, in the comments asked me about it. Yep. And I said, yeah, I'm not really going to say that here. And, um, so, uh, but, and that, that was after talking with you actually, right? Like yep. you said, uh, you know, leave it out. Uh, it's, it, I've seen people taken out over this. This, this is a fraught, um, conversation because for one thing, the timing fits for another thing, we've got the entire side scientific establishment on board with, a an explanation that in principle sounds all right but on scrutiny doesn't really sound all right sea star wasting disease sea star wasting yeah disease no it, it doesn't i mean i that pathogen. that i wrote about right right like well no there's no pathogen right there's there's a couple of things that have been proposed but this is actually in fact a syndrome a disease if you will without a pathogen right so i the, mean that's that's one of the red flags right there but the scientific establishment infers the pathogen from the syndrome. Uh, that's not actually what, I mean, I, I spent a bunch of time with the literature, with the research uh, after coming back from Alaska and looking into it. And it's not, it's not that straightforward at all. Um, but everyone points to sea star wasting disease. Uh, and they talk, you know, they talk about things like water temperature and chemistry and, you know, maybe a pathogen, maybe this, maybe that. Uh, but it, it's not, it's not that straightforward. Well, it was. It was. There was a point at which I was pretty well versed in this stuff, and this was uh, all but universally inferred that we were looking for a pathogen to explain the pattern. That's not what it looks like now. Okay. 
Um, I know that there is an analogous issue with uh, sea urchins, which have had a sudden die-off. Local, it's it's uh, geographically restricted, but it to turns where? out. Where was it? It's a tropical. I can't recall, but um, well, and there, and, but there's a ciliate. There have also been there. There are periodic, episodic, non-predictable currently uh, die-offs of sea stars, sure. um, especially along the. I think especially, maybe not especially, but including along uh, the Eastern Pacific Rim, which is to say the West Coast of North America. So the question is, are those die-offs typically across all species? I think, I don't know. Because that's the thing that throws me about the, it's the, the wasting it, disease, is yeah. that it took out all species right. simultaneously, right. and it did so across a huge uh, latitudinal Decline, which mm-hmm. suggests this isn't about a slight difference in and across temperature change. The entire Pacific Rim. Right. So it yeah, fits. Yeah, not just, you know, all the way down like Baja <clears throat> up to California, Oregon, Washington, B.C., Alaska, Soviet Union, down in Japan. Yeah. And like it may, I don't know how far down it goes, like into Korea. Like I don't, I don't know how far down it goes, but the entire Pacific Rim. Yep. And so it was post-Fukushima. It spread geographically as if, uh, radionuclides yep. were migrating through a food chain, something like that. Um, so it's possible. Yep. I wouldn't say it's it anything like. like a certainty, but I would say I am very skeptical about explanations that don't fit like uh, climate change, which wouldn't be doing it across that range of latitude. It would right. it would take out some species first, then it would take out another. It would be there would be places that were affected, other places that weren't. It doesn't look like that. I would say pathogens you got to have a pretty special story for a pathogen to take out uh, sea stars all at once across so many species and larger clade boundaries. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I would say that um, yeah. if SIV appears to be a real virus, right? Simian immunodeficiency virus. HIV is a is a speciation event from SIV, I think. I think we think that. Uh, Regardless of what it does or does not do, SIV affects lots of species of non-human primates, and HIV appears to, not sure, uh, only infect humans. Uh, But so, you know, there is different level, there, there can be different levels of specificity, of host specificity for viruses, where, you know, you got like avian flu that can somehow get to humans. That seems like a big leap. Mm. Uh, much easier, I would think, and in fact we see swine flu, right? Like even though we are not that closely related to pigs, there are some immunologically similar things between us and pigs, such that 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 gets transferred. That, that's not how I would tell that story. What I would say is, just as we have some amazing natural history stories about pathogens with multiple sequential hosts, right? There's some long history of a particular pathogen leaping back and forth between creatures that have a relationship, right? Bird flu uses birds to disperse, right? 
swine flu, swine... Birds aren't, but birds are getting sick from avian flu. Yeah, they are getting they're, sick. They're not just a vector. That's not my point. My point is this didn't suddenly happen that something emerged that affects people and birds. It's that there is a very ancient history right. of a pathogen. Uh, right, but I'm saying from the point of view, either there's a fascinating story that we have no indication of despite having looked for years that explains why one pathogen takes out a dozen different species of... Uh, sea stars across a wide geographic area. Either that's a story, and we haven't found it, even though we've looked, mm-hmm. or it's not that, because that doesn't sound like a emerging virus suddenly is capable of jumping all of these species boundaries. Right. I just I don't understand how that relates to. I don't understand what you're arguing. Bird with flu. To bird flu. A ancient virus adapted to birds as a mechanism for leaping geographic boundaries because birds have special skills in this regard. It is not surprising. I would probably put that a little differently. Like, you know, it, it infects birds and then and then it finds itself in a host that can leap geographical boundaries. Yes, but my point is it's not new. That is, you're talking about something that has been going on probably for hundreds of millions of years. And to, so to find an adapt, something adapted to a system in which birds and mammals are right. coexisting but, is not surprising. So sea stars have these periodic die-offs. The question that is most relevant here is one you asked, which is in these periodic die-offs, is it restricted to disaster, for instance, the, yep. you know, the, the, the giant the top predator in um, among the sea star community terrible word but um or is it all of them that are affected and if it's all of them that are affected then this is the timing is suspicious and the geographic range is suspicious um, but the fact that it's going after all of them isn't new and therefore doesn't isn't itself a suspicious variable in the story right. which then would be as i said a very interesting case right there is some sort of virus that behaves differently in sea stars, or maybe it's not a virus, but some sort of pathogen that behaves differently in sea stars than most pathogens behave in most creatures, right? And we still haven't found it, even though we've been looking, even though we went after it specifically. Right. That would be an interesting story. And I'm not ruling out an interesting natural sure. story. There could be one. What I'm saying is not having such a story, having in fact no evidence of such a story, and having lots of hypotheses, none of which appears satisfying, I think it is absurd not to put on the table a change that we know happened to the Pacific Ocean at exactly the right moment to have produced a pattern that would be anomalous, right? So, anyway, approximately the right moment. It's not. It's not quite as quite as clear, uh, but it's it's definitely just right there uh, well, in the thick of things, and uh, and there hasn't there had not been a die off that. That complete, I guess. So in response to my piece in Natural Selections, I did hear, not just in the comments, but um, over email as well, from a number of people reporting from various places around the Salish Sea, around California, up in Southeast Alaska as well, no one from the Western Pacific Rim, uh, saying, ah, I was just out and I saw one, I saw one, I saw one. And I hadn't seen any for years, just like you hadn't seen, just like I reported that we hadn't seen any for years. So um, it does it does seem like there's sort of anecdotal evidence that it's coming back, but it was so complete for so long. And I mean, also just so like visually stark, right? Like if, if, if you were around, if, if you if 
if you saw these things oozing and just losing coherence, it looked tragic and, and painful and awful. Uh, so uh, it did seem like given, I agree with you, that given the amount of effort that was put into uh, looking for a pathogen, and like I said, the research does not seem to me now focused, focused, focused on there must be a pathogen. It's still there. And there is one um, contender, but it doesn't look like it's really, I don't remember what, what it is now. I wrote it into the piece, um, but it doesn't really look like that strong a contender. Uh, but there are a lot of people saying, well, you know, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, maybe it's this other thing. And yet I don't see anywhere in the published literature, and maybe I've missed it, but it's certainly not prominent in the published literature, the idea that it might be... Um, downstream of Fukushima. <clears throat> that idea was punished. Right. And that's, so that's what you said to me when I was writing it. Right. Yeah. So I guess I guess my point would be this. When I looked into this literature many years ago, there was this universal consensus that we were looking or near universal consensus that we were looking for a pathogen. And the fact that that has not produced a pathogen at some point will of course produce exhaustion. Mm -hmm. right over that idea and so people will start yeah. putting out other ideas many of them not good right like change in water temperature over that geographic distance no that would change some places and not others at all and you would get a very different pattern um, but uh, all i would say is okay you've got a hypothesis that was not taken seriously because it had political ramifications that were intolerable, which is not a scientific argument. Mm -hmm. That hypothesis has not been put back on the table in any major way, as far as I know, in the aftermath of exhaustion over the major hypothesis, right. which never, I mean, just right. like... No, I see no evidence of it in the, the literature. The search for uh, some animal in the Wuhan seafood market that could have conveyed COVID to the human population, right? It's the same thing, right? That was the hypothesis that needed to be true in order to make certain things not end up in the public discourse. Yep. And the search has not produced either such an animal or a population with an intermediate uh, epidemic which could account for COVID. So we're we're in that situation with the the sea stars. And yep. anyway, so anyway, yes, it's a possibility. It is. Very much so. Okay. Um, next question is just a comment. Magazine cover incoming. Here it is, Zachary. Show my screen. <clears throat> this is unscientific American. We're getting there, but we need the you camel case. You want we the need... camel case. U, S, and A all um, capitalized. Yeah, and that doesn't... They're doing in all caps, which is what I checked. Scientific American has that in their cover. They do. So what you actually want is... I know what you want. I can create it. All right. Fed is, be fed is best. Breastfeeding can be harmful to marginalized people. COVID vaccines show no signs of harming fertility or sexual function. That's excellent. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. All right. Good work. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to like that. Okay. Um, thank you for that. Okay. Are you referring to the mRNA vax experiment as the Nuremberg violation, or are you referring to the creation and global dissemination of COVID-19? Take that as SARS-CoV-2, which... Or both. Um, let's put it this way. The vaccine campaign, 100% and very clearly so. I believe that one of the provisions, and I'm not going to go back and dig through it again, did suggest that the enhancement of 
the ancestor of SARS-CoV-2 would potentially have been such a violation. And I certainly think that that is worth looking at. Although, as, as you point out, Nuremberg was codified at a moment where our technology was too crude with respect to such things to foresee this. Yeah, I think they, they couldn't, or at least they did not imagine us creating our own pathogens. And so it's it, like the Constitution is written uh, in such a way that one has to interpret what they would mean in the current environment as opposed to just taking it at its literal face. Yep. Uh, uh, actually, though, I would say one more thing. Mm -hmm. I appreciate what was done at Nuremberg and how carefully it was done. Mm -hmm. The idea that, you know, let's put aside the exact penalty hanging. Let's just say the conviction of doctors on the basis that anybody who had been through the training that a doctor goes through knew damn well they had no moral right to engage in that experiment. You can apply that exact standard to the enhancement of human potential human pathogens mm -hmm. that might turn into a pandemic, right? In other words, my feeling is Anthony Fauci offshoring gain-of-function research to Wuhan uh, in order to keep it going in light of a ban. Treasonous motherfucker. Uh, to, to not put too fine a point on it. Yeah. Um, no, that was, rumble now, it, was a, it was a betrayal. It's not even treason because it's not even about a nation. That was a betrayal of his responsibilities as an yep. educated human, right? He knew what he needed to know. We to don't even have a word for it when you, when you betray your entire planet. Your species. Yeah. Your species and your planet. Yeah. I guess it's not the planet, but the species. Yeah. We don't have words for those things, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was inhuman. Yeah. It was an inhuman error, and it, he is not alone in that, but he is certainly yep. uh, shows up at every point in the story where one, where <laughs> sure a does. reasonable person might have said, uh, actually, sorry, but we don't have the right to do this. Yeah, I mean, I like I have been railing against, uh, for a while now, as you know, um, the sort of comic bookification of discourse and of an understanding of how people are, especially online, where people imagine that there's supervillains and superheroes out there. And that's not like we don't live in Marvel Universe. That is not actually what is true. I do feel like one of the closest people we have to a supervillain is Fauci. Like, uh, you know, as you say, he's just been everywhere. He excels at villainy. And I hear people say, well, God. you know, I think he's a good man, but obviously blah, blah, blah. I must say, given the number of things that he has his fingerprints on and the harm that was done and his obvious intelligence, right? It's not like this is a dummy. Obvious intelligence and being willing to stand up and say, I am science. Right. If you don't believe me, you are distrusting science itself. That isn't quite the language he used, but it was something to that effect. Those people who attack me are attacking, attacking science. Attacking, not believing, really? attacking. That's right. Really? An attack on yeah. you is inherently an attack yeah. on and science? And if he was a dumb bunny, okay, okay, dude, you just don't get it. But no, he gets it. He gets it. He gets it. He gets yep. it enough enough that his culpability is clear. And while I don't want to see anybody hung, I think it is barbaric and we're we are better than that. Um, I do think that the model of actually humanity has the right to judge you for what you did mm -hmm. um, because any reasonable person in your shoes would have known it was wrong. That applies. The right and the obligation. Yeah. Party one and party two are beholden to the same elites. What other than pronounced disobedience can bring this train back on the rails? Hold um, on. And there's a second one that's not actually a question, but is sort of related. 
I hope for DeSantis versus RFK. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. But the people who called the, so this, there's a, must be a word missing in here. I'm going to read it as it's written. I can't quite. Yeah. But the people who called the correct conspiracy theorists make me, maybe the is supposed to be it, but the people who called it correct, so-called conspiracy theorists, make me dream Trump and well-deserved punishment. Well, I mean, uh, I, DeSantis versus RFK would, would like, we'd actually get debate. We'd actually get conversation. Yep. We'd actually get change. I mean, look, yeah. uh, I was listening to DeSantis announcement on Twitter, which was not at all the way it was portrayed in the media. And, yeah, say. yeah. How shocking. It is shocking. Um, but I was just, I was blown away by what it was like to hear a contender for the office speak off the cuff, articulately uh, lay out positions that he knew would not please everybody. This wasn't something that was yep. designed to obscure some other thing. This was just an intelligent human being giving his perspective, knowing that it would anger some, that it would embolden others. And it is so different yeah. from what a modern presidential campaign sounds like. Just like, and it's clearly so important to the Democrats that he get nowhere close to the That he get nomination. no traction, right, yeah, because so they, would, they would far rather elect Trump than, uh, than DeSantis. Yeah. Um, DeSantis would be um, more effective and more powerful and uh, do stand to actually change the course of some things. Yep. Yeah. I mean... That's without saying good or bad. It's just that at least this is a patriotic human being mm -hmm. who is intelligent, not has not lost his mind to dementia or is not so beholden to something else that he can't lay out a position, yeah. right? And to me, the thing that is most frightening... Yeah, and he looks... Sorry, but he, he looks like a patriot, and I know Kennedy's a patriot. Yep. Kennedy's... No, I think they both are. Yeah. I think they both are, and, you know, we know... Kennedy better than we know DeSantis, but I've met the man and uh, I believe he's a patriot. Um, but here, I mean, this leads right to the really troubling thing here, mm -hmm. which is how unpatriotic would you have to be to attempt to meddle from the blue side in the red primary against DeSantis because he is competent, right? Because he is capable of behaving like an adult in office, right? I mean, you should want. It happened in 2016. Of course it did. Of course it did. And the same people are meddling. But I guess my point is what doesn't get said about them enough is it is unpatriotic to try to get rid of the rational person in the other party who might ascend to the office because at the end of the day, a patriot wants the best person in the office who can get there. And if the red folks win and you're a blue folk, you should want the competent person on the red team in the office. You want that person picking up the phone yes. if there's a question about launching nuclear weapons. Yeah. You want if you're going to lose, you want second best in office. Not, if I'm going to lose, I don't fucking care. Yeah. And that's, this is, that's not a patriotic position. This is, in fact, why traditionally you are not allowed to vote in the other team's primary. Mm -hmm. Right. There's right. a perverse incentive. Right. You do not want your other party enfeebled 
by people voting mm-hmm. for the loser in that party so that they can beat them, right? That's right. not the way the system is supposed to function. Mm-hmm. And in this case, my feeling is uh, Kennedy is closer to my value system. Yep. But I am comfortable with either of those people in the office, right? I, I will sleep easy with either of those people in the office knowing that there is an adult there yeah. to do the job of steering the country. Right. So we talked in the main live stream about what I perceive as my uh, naivete about thinking that never again wasn't really relevant to the United States. Uh, but I also could not have imagined I'm making myself appear to have thought a lot about American politics when I was a kid and I didn't, but, um, but it was the bicentennial. Like we had that when we were seven, right? So like in 1976 and, uh, and, and you know, Reagan came to office and that polarized everyone. And there was a big third part, like the third, you know, I ran contra, like there was a lot of stuff happening to think about mm-hmm. the oil, the gas lines in the late seventies. I remember the being in those embargo. gas lines yeah. with my dad just for hours. Like I got good father daughter time, but for fuck's sake, like yeah. crazy. But as much as each election seemed polarizing and in my household, my parents actually voted opposite directions and so canceled each other's votes out often. Uh, and there wasn't a it wasn't we didn't have heated dinner conversations about that fact it was just a known thing and i thought it was bizarre but i hope it wasn't actually because i think that's a really good sign that yep. you can love each other so deeply and feel very differently about who should be running the country but as a result i felt like as much as you know i thought oh when reagan was elected i was 11 or whatever like oh it's terrible it's a disaster for the country wasn't i guess and i still don't i i don't know exactly what the truth is there still but i never would have imagined that we i would be dreaming about a situation in which there were two plausible candidates running for president in the two major parties instead of zero right (laughs) like like where it would be like we have to dream about having plausible candidates what what part of democracy have we forgotten? Right. It would be win-win. You had two two competent people, yeah. two competent, courageous patriots running for the office. And then the point is, well, I prefer this one to that one, but I'm okay with a loss rather than, oh my God, the you know, the sky is falling if this other person gets into the office. Right. And we are being we are being marshaled in the direction of a system that puts us in that predicament every time or creates the impression that it has, mm-hmm. right? I, I do remember, you know, all of those times that we were told, you can't do a third-party thing this year. You know why? Because you'll elect so-and-so if you do, and we cannot afford that. And then at you the got to wait, son. Right. Your time will come, but not now. This is <laughs> too this important. Is, this this is, one's is, too important. Do you understand that we're fighting for... Right. Issue du jour. You don't want to be responsible for electing so-and-so. And you know what? The Supreme Court, right? Mm-hmm. You wouldn't want to be responsible for that. No, you and would so not. So the point is, now that the dam has broken, we've elected the greater evil, the world <laughs> did not end, the Supreme Court has fallen, the world is not ending, 
Um, you know, I'm not arguing that you have to be happy with the direction things are going, but the point is, like, I knew this was a con right. at the point that it was oh, Mitt Romney who was the greater evil that we couldn't possibly risk electing. I right? love that you use him as the example. Like, you're like, Mitt Romney, he just is not the supervillain you've been waiting for. He's just not. He, Whatever he is, <laughs> the point is, in the context of Trump, everybody's like, oh, if we could only get a candidate like Mitt Romney. And it's like, <laughs> do you remember what you told me about Mitt Romney? <laughs> You were like, that will be the end of the universe if this person is elected, right? right? Yep. Yeah. It, it will always be the end of the universe. It will always be the end of the universe until we start ignoring them because they're lying. Yeah, exactly. Have you seen James Lindsay's talk called The Negation of the Real? Nope. Someone's asking us to come in. I haven't seen it. Jim is great. Um, he, the person says it nicely ties together all the chaos in the world, um, but I haven't seen it. Uh, we're at about an hour. Uh, let's get a couple more in. Okay. Um, let's get a couple more here. Oh, I don't know what a, what's a, I feel like this is a play on words and I'm not getting it. Um, the one from Heather, please buy Brett a fly assault. Oh, Oh, I, something about the salt thing that you're talking about, but I don't know what it means. I see him getting giddy over it. I could see him. I could see him getting giddy. Is this it. a way of dealing with flies in your house? Because I've come up with a very well. I wonder. I, I that may be that, that may, may be, be responsive. It. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Zach is going to look up what a fly assault is, and oh. and um, it's spelled oh, okay. at least the way the guy has spelled it. It's F L Y dash A dot S A L T. Spelled differently, but it's oh. a gun for shooting flies in your house. I think and that's what it looks like. It is. That's what everything that comes up is. Oh, with salt. You load it with salt. Oh, right. I've heard of this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. well, salt. the Who should probably get oh, on the, uh, totally. you know, Long Lives for Houseflies campaign. <laughs> 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 and and stop right. these. Um, yeah, you could get giddy over it, and it would keep the isopropyl off the windows. <laughs> you want rock salt all over the walls. Yeah, I don't know. No, I'd rather have isopropyl, frankly, yeah. which is what he's doing now. Yes, it works. Like gangbusters. Mm. Okay. Um, sorry, guys. I heard several good questions here, but I'm going to stick to two more. Um, why five toes and fingers? Isn't three of each sufficient? <laughs> um, uh, I mean, the, lots of mammals have different numbers. Of, I mean, in fact, since since we came out of came out of the water as tetrapods. Boy, I think my estimate of mammal origins was about right, uh, but tetrapod origins 350 million years ago? I'm, not, I'm much less sure of that. But since we came out, um, and actually since before then, since we were lobefin fish in the water, there's there's been variation from like up to eight or nine down to one, right? Like horses are down to, or do horses have one and then like two up? Do they still so. have three? Or they have two, or maybe the first, and then I I think there are some extant mammals that have only one, and some with two, and um, and here we have five, and five is a relatively stable number for mammals, but by no means the only the only answer. Um, I guess I would put the uh, the burden of responsibility for this question back on you. Isn't three of each sufficient for what, and on what grounds? Yeah, I would point out mm -hmm. that if we had three we probably would have ended up with Ten Commandments, I mean, Six Commandments, 
and six enumerated rights in the Bill of Rights, which is not nearly enough, by the way. We or could 12. do without the third. Or 12. We could have ended up with 12. We could, we could count again. I don't know. My feeling is, yeah, what you said, for, for what? Yeah. Because for, <laughs> you know, yeah, for uh, holding a baseball bat, maybe. Yeah, I mean, you could, so the chameleons, I believe, retain their five, but then they're fused. They're and I don't fused. actually remember, but they're, so you ever look at, chameleon hands and you should if you haven't um and i we can't do it but it look i mean it looks like it looks like this but it's actually two on one side and three and they and they grip really 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 well and they also have that prehensile tail thing going on um but that's you know that's five it's five digits it's five skeletal digits that are that are fused into a, a one two combination yeah um so yeah for chameleons two appears to be sufficient but they've got five and so they just sort of encased them in little skin gloves and and turn it into two. Uh, so you could try encasing your some of your fingers in little skin gloves um, or leather. I would probably use, yeah, processed leather. I remember, there's some sport in which you can buy gloves that have your. Maybe it's skiing. Even I saw some gloves like this. And to do what? I can't remember. When I remember what sport it is, I'll know what the point was. What what is what is it basically is it? fuses fingers. It's like mittens I mean, that are. I was going to say, aren't you talking about mittens? No, it's it's weirder than that. Um, yeah, I don't know. But if you actually <laughs> neither do I. Yeah, no, you don't. Uh, if you actually think that instead of getting uh, six rights in the Bill of Rights that we could get twelve, then I might actually be in favor of this. We're going to go hex. Okay. I just think there were a couple rights that needed to be enumerated that, that weren't. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Sounds like it's been plaguing you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'd be easier to add two than subtract four, so right. uh, we'll go we'll go double hex. Subtracting hacks. one, we could do. You know, the, the third the, amendment. No, I know, but I I've, I don't remember now, but I have heard some good arguments for really wanting to maintain the right to not have soldiers quartered in your home. It, oh, I, I don't want them quartered. 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 More important than um, I think it's much more important than you think. Yeah. I don't think so. I think the um, rapidly deploying buildings has obviated the need to protect our homes. But I don't know. I could be wrong. Let's, it doesn't hurt to have it in there as long as we're not giving up a spot for something else. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. One more question. Sorry to those whose questions we have not gotten to. Um, has climate change groupthink hijacked and undermined the environmental movement? 100%. Yes. Hundred percent, and 100%. we have a, we have a, regardless of what is true about climate change. Yeah, hundred percent, regardless of what is true about climate change, the groupthink, the anti-scientific tactics, the number of people who are claiming to be climate scientists who couldn't science their way out of a paper bag, uh, makes all of us look stupid, and makes it really hard to make the absolutely true and urgent arguments about habitat loss, about air quality, about water quality, about plastic pollution, about endocrine disruptors in the environment, on and on and on and on. Yep. Because when you say environment, people think climate change and some number of people then go like, nah, not listening. And it's appalling. Yep. It's terrible. No, it is. It is. It is sucking up all the oxygen in the room and we have an environmental crisis on our hands that has to be dealt with because frankly, we don't have the right to leave a lesser planet to future generations and the rate at which we are degrading the planet is very high. Yes. And this brings you back to RFK. And this brings us back to RFK. Thank you. Yeah. Um, he, 
He's not an anti-vaxxer. <laughs> he is an ardent environmentalist, and he always has been. And he not just cares deeply, but understands, has been many, many places and been there in deep ways, in real ways, unlike, you know, he doesn't do the floating city version of getting to places. He goes in and he gets real access and he he, he knows. So we were, we were lucky to have him in our home and uh, he saw a skull on a shelf and commented on it and we had a little conversation about it and he like he immediately knew at the point that we said where it was from what it was likely to be and what it couldn't be and like there was no reason to expect him to know those things yeah um he does have a uh an encyclopedic mind for things that he has pointed his attention to yeah and the and he, he cares deeply about the environment i think i think he would describe himself as understanding himself to be wanting to be a steward of the environment. And what we need is an informed, powerful steward of the environment that actually understands what, um, what we are putting at risk. Yep. Yeah. Here, here. All right. Um, thank you for reminding us to bring that back to RFK because it's totally relevant there. All right. Well, this has been our first uh, Q and A on Rumble. We're actually going to in the future. We're going to probably decrease the Q and A's a bit, but we're going to be back next week with another private, uh, not private, with another uh, Q and A on Rumble. We're also going to be doing our private Q and A uh, live streaming from here from Rumble, but only accessible to um, people who've joined us at my Patreon. Uh, so if you want to join us tomorrow, Sunday, May something, twenty eighth at eleven a.m. Pacific, um, we welcome you. And uh, if not that, then we'll see you next week uh, again at noon 30 Pacific on Saturday for the main live stream and then another Q&A just here on Rumble after that. So until we see you next time and please subscribe. Yeah. Seriously, this, seriously. Is, our, this is our new Rumble channel. Please subscribe to it. And if you, you know, if it's free. So this doesn't make any sense at all. But, you know, if you're trying to decide about the subscriptions, unsubscribe from the YouTube channel if you gotta. And subscribe to the Rumble channel. I mean, seriously. No, 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 no. Just leave everything where it is over on the YouTube side. But uh, subscribe here, for sure. Yeah, it's free. It doesn't cost you anything. You can presumably turn off all the notifications and just, like, subscribe. Anyway, uh, we will see you next, either tomorrow or uh, next week, same time, same place. And until we do, be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. Be well, everyone. <laughs>